0: Hello, and welcome back to another edition of the Christian Faith Radio Hour. This is David Canfield. You can visit me online at my website, thechristianfaith.org. And if you want to receive our emails, we usually send out two or three emails a week. Uh, Just click on the subscribe link and we'll be happy to add you to the mailing list. And if you have comments or questions about the Christian life, in general or about the program, we'd be happy to hear from you. You can send us a note at notes at thechristianfaith.org. So in this program I wanted to continue our consideration of the teaching known as Amillennialism. I just feel there's a need to do that because, uh, as I said in the last program, so many uh, young people today seem to be affected by this teaching. It seems to be gaining in popularity and it's a profoundly false system of teaching. Uh, really, uh, the more I look at this, to be honest, I have to say the worse it gets. Uh, just how bad this system of teaching really is. Uh, you know, and I want to start by saying I don't encourage, in general, people to study theology. I don't feel that's healthy in terms of anyone's spiritual development. What needs to be the focus of our study is the Bible itself. Now, that's not to say that we don't need a theological framework we should have some kind of general view for how we approach the Bible. You know, if, if you were to ask me, I would say, for the most part, I take a dispensational view of the Bible. But I don't spend my time studying dispensationalism. I study the Bible, and I read the Bible. It's so important to develop that habit, and we've stressed this a lot on this program. In terms of our spiritual growth and our, our knowledge of the truth, just about nothing can replace that habit of reading through the Bible consecutively, day by day, uh, I'm happy to say I uh, just this past week I uh, finished up again another reading of the Bible. I was a little bit late this year, but I got through it. Thank the Lord for that. Uh, and, and and I always encourage believers to develop that habit because that's what's going to help you get a firm grounding in God's truth. Uh, if you study theology as, as an end in itself, I just it just I it's very hard to see how that can be healthy for our spiritual development. And I say that as one who very much uh, appreciates the need for a firm grasp on the objective aspect of God's truth. You know, sometimes believers today and in, in, in the background that I have, uh, we always stress very much the need for the experience of Christ and the subjective experience of what's in the New Testament. And, and I think that's wonderful. You need that. But the real genuine experience of Christ will always be based, in principle at least, on a firm grasp of the objective truth that's in the scriptures. The objective always comes first, and then you have the subjective. When Jesus is talking to the believers in John 15, he tells them, abide in me and I in you. Now, when we believe in Christ, we are transferred into Christ. We're abiding in Him. That's the objective aspect of the truth. Based upon that fact, we enter into the real experience of Christ abiding in us. So the, the more we have a grasp of the fact that we are in Christ and abiding in Him, the richer our experience of abiding in Christ is going to be. So you need to have both sides. You have the objective aspect of the fact that we are in Christ, and you have the subjective aspect of His living within us for us to experience Him. You need to have both sides. And it's always, and that's just one example, just to say that we always will find that our subjective experience of Christ will be much stronger and much richer when we have a firm and solid grasp on the objective aspect of the truth, which generally refers to what Christ has done on our behalf. The subjective aspect, Concerning the experience of Christ, has to do mainly with what He's working out within us today. And you have to have both sides. So, and secondly, what I'd say is when I'm saying don't study theology, I don't mean you shouldn't read spiritual books. I think you have to read spiritual books. If you don't spend time in the right kind of spiritual book, it will lead to spiritual poverty. And that's because no one Christian could ever open the entire Bible. To really open up the entire Bible, it takes the entire body of Christ. And as I stressed in the program last week, the, the Lord recovers his truth step by step. And that's what he's been doing now for centuries. So we today, have, a, as believers in Christ, have a rich, rich heritage of truth from so many who have gone before us. Uh, and, and the ones who've helped me the most, or the, the main brother who's helped me is Witness Lee. Uh, the, he was the co-worker of Watchman Nee. Uh, Watchman Nee sent Witness Lee to Taiwan when he saw the situation in China that the communists were going to take over and Witness Lee continued there the work they'd begun in China and eventually he came to the United States. And that's the brother who really opened up the Bible to me and really helped me to understand the Bible and I was very blessed to be under his ministry for so many years. That's just been a huge blessing to me. Thank the Lord for that, for which I'll be eternally grateful. Uh, but of course, Watchman Nee also John Darby, Andrew Murray, um, so many ones. Uh, C.H. McIntosh's Notes on the Pentateuch, is a very, very uh, good resource. Um, and recently, G.H. Uh, Pember's writings on prophecy have been a big, big help to me. So these are some of the main ones, uh, but there's, there's others besides that have given us a rich spiritual heritage, and to be in their writings will very much enrich and uplift our uh, understanding of the Bible. So when I say don't study theology, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be in other books besides the Bible, and I'm not saying that the objective aspect of the truth isn't important. What I'm saying is don't make theology the focus of your study. You know, this guy said this, this brother said that. Focus on studying the Bible, and if you have a theological framework, use that framework for understanding the Bible and for opening the scriptures. That's the right way to approach the Bible. You know, whenever we overly systematize the Bible, it becomes what Paul calls in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, a system of error. It's really so. The Bible was not written in a systematic way, and it's not meant to be understood in a systematic way either. That's just not how God conveys his truth. In Titus chapter 3, verse 9, uh, the Apostle Paul warns us, he says, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strifes and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And it's really so. Just, uh, just these wranglings, these theological disputes so often have almost no significance whatsoever. They just, uh, it's a love of disputation, and it's what the Apostle Paul warns us about. In 1 Timothy 6, 5, he talks about perpetual wranglings of men corrupted in mind. And 2 Timothy 2.22 is an interesting verse. Uh, that's the verse that, where the apostle exhorts us to flee youthful lusts. And most often that's applied to fleeing from sexual corruption, which for sure is, is a big issue. Uh, and that, that's a good way to use that verse. But in the context of 2 Timothy chapter 2, what he's really talking about there is fleeing from the lust for disputation. 2 Timothy 2, chapter 16 says, Shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. And then in verse 22, okay, that's where he says, Flee youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But what does verse 23 say? But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. So the context of that verse, of fleeing youthful lusts, is avoid that lust for disputation. We shouldn't shouldn't uh, be involved in that. And so often that's where uh, these theological disputes uh, end up and what they're really all about, over things that just don't matter. You know, as I was working on this, I was reminded of uh, a section in Pember's writings. That's really something. He's talking about uh, uh, the situation in Germany not long after the Reformation, um, and this is an example of this. Okay, so he talks about the two great schools of um, uh, thought among the Protestants. He says, The German Protestants were divided into two great uh, communities, the Lutheran Church and the Reformed, the former of which still insisted upon a real presence in the bread of the Lord's Supper and retained Roman vestments and many Roman ceremonies, while the Reformed or Calvinistic Church repudiated such doctrines and practices but thrust their own extreme views of predestination, election, and reprobation into undue prominence. So I think that's a a good summary of of these two different basic schools of thought among the Protestants at that time. And this is uh, basically the century after the Reformation. Uh, And and what he says is that by this time, in part because of the Thirty Years' War, which was so destructive, um, whatever spiritual energy had existed there in Germany was pretty much exhausted So in other words, they were just, instead of caring for the believers in a spiritual way, they were just arguing about their different theologies. And then he has a couple of interesting statements from uh, contemporaries uh, of this time. Uh, One was uh, Philip Jacob Spener. Now, he was a pietist, and he was concerned, unlike these theologians, he was concerned about the believers having a holy living. So Pember comments about him, he says, Spainer had previously complained that the majority of the clergy viewed their religion from a merely intellectual standpoint and provided they could defend their dogmas against opponents were altogether careless in regard to their own spiritual life. Again, here you just see theology just becomes a substitute, uh, an unhealthy substitute for really being in the Word and really being exercised before the Lord about how we can grow in Him spiritually. And then he has another comment. This is a quotation that Pember cites from another one of the Pietists named Matthew Pfaff, and I'm assuming I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's spelled P F A F F, Matthew Pfaff, uh, who wrote this uh, in a remonstrance addressed to the Protestants uh, in 1720. Listen to this statement. He said, if the apostles should return to earth and be called to the professors' chairs, they would evince a woeful ignorance concerning the things which are the subject of strife among the theologians. What a damning statement about the the nature of so many of these theological uh, disputes today. All these professors, these learned people, just disputing over nothing. It means nothing. Uh, And arguing about small points and, and Mr., a FAF there is just saying the apostles would have no idea what you're even talking about. It's really so. And if that's the case, it shouldn't bother us either. We shouldn't occupy us at all. So again, having said all that, you know I, I not I want to be careful not to encourage the study of theology as an end in itself as we're dealing with the school of teaching called amillennialism. but we need to deal with it, but I don't want to encourage people to make the study of theology uh, a focus of our Christian life, because as I, as I say, it's just not healthy. But we do need to deal with this false teaching. You just can't avoid it when you see this spreading like it is today. And so now I want to go on and begin to consider that, um, some of the, the basic points about amillennialism. So just to review a little bit, and I, I think most of the people listening to this program probably will know this already, but Uh, Most evangelical and fundamental Christians today would believe that the Lord is going to come back and establish his kingdom on the earth for 1,000 years uh, before the eternal reign of Christ. And that's going to be in fulfillment of the Old Testament promises to King David and to the nation of Israel, and also uh, as a fulfillment of Revelation chapter 20, which describes how the Lord's reign on the earth for 1,000 years. And that belief is called premillennialism. In other words, before the millennium. The Lord comes back before the millennium. Amillennialism teaches that we're actually already in the millennium today. According to the amillennial understanding, the millennium, millennial reign of Christ began when he ascended to the throne in heaven, and it will continue up until the final rebellion against God uh, in this age, at that time, Christ will come down and deal with all the evil that's in the world, and then we'll go right into eternity. There's not going to be an earthly reign of Christ for a thousand years. That's not going to happen. The, the language they say in Revelation 20 is symbolic. And, and as I say, that's the teaching that's called amillennialism. And that's what we're trying to uh, deal with in this in this program today. So the first uh, first point to note about amillennialism itself uh, has to do with its origins. When, you know, a lot of times, Reformed theologians, when they're trying to, to knock dispensationalism, they they love to point out that the dispensational uh, system of theology did not really come about until about the 1800s with John Darby and the Plymouth Brethren. And that's basically true. Uh, that's right. It, it's, a, it's a later, much later development uh, in terms of a Christian understanding of the Bible. And we've explained I tried to explain last week why that's really not a problem, because the Lord develops his truth in a progressive way. That's just the way he does it. So that's what we would expect, uh, as the Lord continues to develop his truth, that more and more will come out. But even when these kinds of theologians, the Reformed theologians, make this kind of attack, they're really condemning themselves in a couple of ways, a couple of very important ways. Uh, First of all, you could say the same thing about justification by faith. Uh, relatively speaking, justification by faith is fairly new. Only in the last uh, five or 600 years or so, uh, just about exactly 500 years, in fact, has that really been publicly taught. And so maybe the Catholics would say, well, that's a very recent development. The church didn't really teach justification by faith before then, which is true. But as it happens, justification by faith is very much taught in the Bible. So that was a recovery of God's truth. Even though it's more recent than what the church, the Roman church, historically taught. So to try to put down dispensationalism, because it's newer, really doesn't carry any weight, first of all. But the second reason is really more significant, which is when you consider specifically the matter of your view of the end times, what's known as eschatology, the the view that's held Uh, by Reformed theologians is the amillennial view. Well, amillennialism, as we said last week, did not really uh, come into prominence in the church until 400 A.D., roughly 400 A.D., when it was set forth by uh, Augustine of Hippo, the Bishop of Hippo. Um, And because of his influence, it's been predominant ever since. But it wasn't predominant in the church prior to that time. Well, what was predominant in the early church was the premillennial view of the Lord's return. Now, at that time, they didn't call it the premillennial view. Uh, they called it Achillesm. And that's because the that's the achilliasm relates to the Greek word for 1,000. Uh, millennial relates to the Latin word for 1,000. So in the early church, Uh, And even today, when you're talking about the premillennial view of the early church, it's referred to as Kiliasm. And that's spelled uh, C-H-I-L-I-A-S-M, Kiliasm. And so, a brother actually sent me a paper this week, which is very helpful, uh, in this matter of the the origins of our millennialism. Uh, This is from a man named Thomas Ice, from 2009, and At that time, he was a professor at Liberty University. I don't know any of his other background, but I'll link to this paper in the program description. I just want to read a few of the quotes uh, from it. Uh, And according to Mr. Ice, premillennialism, or Kiliasm, as it was called in the early church, was the pervasive view of the earliest Orthodox fathers. This is the consensus of both liberal and conservative scholars who are experts in early church theology. And then he goes on, he refers to one very well known scholar, uh, J.N.D. Kelly, uh, who says that uh, the Kiliastic doctrine was, quote, widely popular at this time. He's talking about during the second century. And uh, he says, Mr. Kelly goes on, uh, he says, the great theologians who followed the apologists, uh, Irenaeus, Tertullian, and Hippolytus, uh, uh, were all exp- exponents of millenarianism, in other words, of the premillennial view. And then he, uh, Mr. Ice quotes another uh, scholar uh, he says, who says, uh, primitive Christianity was marked by great kiliastic enthusiasm. And by kiliasm, strictly speaking, is meant the belief that Christ was to return to earth and reign visibly for 1,000 years. So this was the pervasive view of the early Christians and of the early church fathers was this premillennial view. And that's, to sum that up, Mr. I states, premillennialism was not contradicted by a single Orthodox church father until the beginning of the 3rd century. But that was the view, on the whole, of the early church, of the early believers in Christ. They held this premillennial view. They were looking for the Lord to return prior to the millennium to establish his kingdom on the earth. Well, what happened? Why Why did the church eventually reject that view and take up instead the amillennial view? Well, okay, and, and again, in Mr. Ice, in his paper, he gives a couple of reasons, and they're very, very significant here. He says, uh, and he's quoting another scholar who says, In the early Christian centuries, Achilleism first weakened with the strengthening among Christians of Greek philosophical thought. In other words, this premillennial view of the Lord's return was weakened with the strengthening among Christians of Greek philosophy. So it was when Greek philosophy began to permeate the church, that's when the premillennial view began to weaken. Well, why was that? Well, Mr. Ice explains, he says, because of the Greek denial of the importance of the physical realm, they denied the whole idea of that resurrection was possible. This anti-physical bias was the basis for the rejection of a future physical kingdom of God on earth. So in other words, there was a strong Greek influence that denied the premillennial view because they, the Greeks wanted to think only the spiritual realm really mattered. So how could God care to establish His uh, a physical kingdom on the earth? They couldn't accept that view, so they rejected the, the the teaching of Revelation 20, that that's exactly what was going to happen, not because of a biblical basis, but because of Greek philosophy. So Greek philosophy played a huge part in the development of the amillennial thought. It wasn't a biblical thought that was the origin for this. It was Greek philosophy, very, very... Uh, uh, serious indictment of the Amillennial school of teaching it shows you where this is really coming from not from the bible at all it's coming from a really a pagan source a pagan source it really is but okay there's another reason too why the Amillennial school was adopted at this time and that is very to put it very in a very blunt way very frank way the church was losing its testimony as a gathering that was distinct from the world. To look at it another way, the church was joining itself to the world. And to do that, it had to give up its hope of the Lord's return. You know, if you believe the Lord is going to come and establish his kingdom on this earth we live in today, then you're going to have a strong sense, I need to be ready for the Lord's return. I can't be living my life for what's going on in the world today. I can't be seeking the things of the world. I have to be prepared for the Lord's return. And conversely, if you uh, want to live in the world, if you want to make your home in the world, you're not going to be one who's able to hold on hold on to that hope of the Lord's return. And by making the Lord's return something only in the spiritual realm, you make it so distant and so remote from who we are today, it ceases to have that same effect on the believers and upon their conscience that, that would urge them to come out of the world and follow Christ. Like Matthew 25 says, the virgins taking their lamps and, and going out to follow the Lord. The amillennial view uh, really makes a way uh, for the believers, in other words, to settle down in the world. And that's exactly what was happening at this time. And again, Mr. Ice has some very helpful quotes uh, about this. He quotes one one scholar who says, Millenarianism remained powerful in the Christian church so long as Christians were an unpopular minority threatened with persecution. When in the 4th century Christianity attained a position of supremacy in the Mediterranean Mediterranean world and became the official religion of the empire, the church set out to eradicate millenarian beliefs. That is just a a remarkable statement. Uh, And and again, it's just a a real... uh, uh, condemnation of the origins and the real origins of the amillennial teaching. Uh, It wasn't because they saw this in the Bible. It was because the believers, some of the church leaders at that time, wanted to settle down in the world. And I have to say, until this very day, it has that same effect on believers. If you adopt the amillennial teaching concerning the end times, it helps you to settle down in the world and to be one who's not looking for the Lord's return as an immediate prospect that I have to prepare for. That's the real nature of the amillennial system, and it's one of the things that makes it so evil, so deadly to Christians. Um, Mr. Ice uh, has another statement here from another scholar. He says, During the third century, the belief in Kiliasm as a part of the church's faith died out in nearly all parts of the church. It did not seem called for. By the condition of the church, which was rapidly adjusting itself to the world in which it found itself. Because its home was in the world now. So why would you look for the Lord's return as an immediate prospect? You you married the world. Basically, you've given up hope of the Lord's return. John Darby has a very telling statement along these lines. Uh, uh, He's he's talking about um, the Lord's parable in Matthew 24, uh, he says, "Who then is that faithful and prudent slave whom the master has set over his house to give them food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Truly, I tell you that he will set him over all his possessions. But if that evil slave delay says in his heart, My master delays and begins to beat his fellow slaves and to eat and drink with the drunken, the master of that slave will come at a day which he does not expect, and in an hour which he does not know." and will cut him asunder and appoint his portion with the hypocrites. In that place there will be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. That's Matthew 24, verses 45 through 51. And in particular, verse 48 was what Mr. Darby is talking about in his synopsis. The the verse that says, If that evil slave says in his heart, my master delays. So, So listen to what Darby says here in his synopsis on this portion of scripture. How solemn the testimony given here to the effect of the assemblies losing the present expectation of the Lord's return. What causes the professing church to run into hierarchical oppression and worldliness so as to be cut off in the the end as hypocrites is saying, in the heart, my master delays his coming, giving up the present expectation. He's saying that's what uh, caused the church to become so... uh, uh, evil in so many ways and, and with with the hierarchical system of, of paganism uh, to adopt all these these worldly trappings it's because it gave up that present hope of the Lord's return as previously held in the form of Kiliasm. As what we would call today is the premillennial view of the Lord's return that he's going to come and establish his kingdom on the earth. So again just by looking at the origins of the amillennial system of belief, you can see how evil this form of teaching really is. So now let's come to the Bible and see what the Bible has to say about amillennialism. And when we do that, the first thing we notice is that amillennialism simply isn't in the Bible. There is no statement regarding the amillennial view of the end times in the entire Bible. And I'm not saying that to be argumentative. That's a simple statement of fact. You know, whenever you talk to an amillennialist, they're very quick to point out that Revelation chapter 20 is the only explicit mention of the millennium in the Bible, which is true. But when you go there to Revelation 20, what you see is it lays out the end times in the exact way that the premillennial school says with Christ coming before the millennium. So they're right to say there's only one statement about the millennium in the entire Bible, one explicit statement. Well, as it happens, that's exactly one more statement than you find concerning the amillennial view of the end times. And so, you know, so to speak, if you're keeping score at home, that means the pre-mill's one, the amill's nothing. I mean, there really isn't anything in the Bible that sets forth the amillennial school of teaching. That's a very basic an important point to keep in mind when you're considering this teaching. So, what they have to say is that the language in Revelation is symbolic; it's all symbolic. It doesn't; it's not really going to happen like it's it's laid out there. It's a, it's a symbolic teaching, and then they build their their understanding of the end times based on inferences from other passages in the the, the New Testament, basically, and. And that really brings us to the basic, uh, fundamental principle of, millennial teaching, and I'll just be very blunt about this and uh, and just say it flat out: their basic, uh, you know, to use a fancy term, their basic hermeneutic, their basic principle of their teaching is a refusal to believe all that the prophets have spoken. That's really their basic principle. And of course, they would not. They would deny uh, that that's the case. What they would say is, we we take it symbolically. We take the, uh, a lot of prophecy as, as symbolic language. We, we believe it, but it's just symbolic. But really, when you dig down into it, they really are refusing to believe what is spoken in the Bible. Biblical prophecy, and especially in the Book of Revelation, biblical prophecy is always meant to be taken literally. Uh, now, sometimes the prophecy is conveyed in symbolic language, that's true, but the underlying prophecy is always meant to be taken literally, and that's, uh, again, this is one, another reason why this school of teaching is so evil, because it does so much to take the Bible out of the hands of Christians and to make us feel we can't really trust in the, uh, the promises that are in the Bible, because if you're saying they're symbolic, what you're really saying is they're not going to be fulfilled, like the Old Testament provinces that God made to the nation of Israel, they're not really going to be fulfilled to Israel. Those are going to be fulfilled in the church. That's a big principle, a big teaching of amillennialism. And, you know, as I was getting into this, um, I, looked at, uh, I looked at Baker's Dictionary of Theology, which on the whole I think is a good resource for, if you have certain uh, questions about uh, theological matters, it, it gives some good, uh, uh, has some good articles in there. And in their article on the millennium, they they list some of the objections people have to the premillennial view of biblical teaching. And the first one, the first objection that they list, they say, uh, it implies an untenable literalness in the interpretation of prophecy. And again, that gets to this matter of whether or not you believe what the prophets have spoken. And I would just ask, do you have any scriptural basis for not taking prophecy in a literal sense, you know. Consider consider for example uh, Revelation thirteen chapter one, uh, with the, the you have the beast coming up out of the sea there. Uh, in the Bible, it's, it's clearly using a figurative language there to convey a literal truth. That's an example of that. Again, as I said earlier, the the, the language make that you, it uses to convey. Biblical prophecy may be figurative, but the prophecy itself is quite literal. So when when uh, John talks about he saw uh, a beast coming up out of the sea, he's not talking about some event like an old Japanese horror movie like with Godzilla coming up out of the sea. There's, I think it's an atom bomb or something goes off and this thing comes up out of the sea. He's not talking about that kind of thing. The Bible, when it gives us a figure like that, a sign, it always gives us the basis for interpreting that sign in a biblical way. And, of course, uh, anyone who studies biblical prophecy knows this is a reference back to Daniel chapter 7, where you have Daniel's vision of the four beasts coming up out of the sea. And the beast there in Revelation 13 is the last of those beasts that Daniel prophesied, uh, that Daniel saw coming up in in his vision. And what he explains, what the angel explains in the vision there is that these beasts are four different empires. So the beast coming up out of the sea in Revelation 13 signifies the revived Roman Empire and also the evil head of that Roman Empire who will eventually be the Antichrist. So it's using figurative language there to show us what's going to be happening. But the prophecy itself is quite literal. It's saying this, this uh, Antichrist will come up out of the sea, in uh, Revelation 17, it says he comes up out of the abyss, the beast. And, and so you had to put those two together. It indica- it's indicating uh, today the spirit of, of this evil being is in the abyss. He's going to come up out of the abyss at the end times and inhabit the body, from, we know from other scriptures, of, uh, of another leader who's been slain, and that's going to be the Antichrist. So, again, there's some figurative language there, but that's going to have a literal fulfillment. And it's that way with all uh, the prophecies in Revelation. They're all meant to be taken in a literal way, even though sometimes they are conveyed in figurative languages, language and uh, symbols. So there's no basis, and I would just ask, okay, what prophecy is not meant to be taken literally? Can you find any in the book of Revelation that are like that? Now, for their school of teaching, the amillennialists have to say that a lot of prophecy in the Old Testament, especially concerning the nation of Israel, is is figurative language. But really, really, as I say, it really is basically a refusal to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And so I want to get into some of the specifics of that now. Uh, But let me say, first of all, um, in this program, we're not going to get to Revelation chapter 20, because that's really the heart of the whole. Uh, issue over the end times, is what, how you view Revelation 20. So that's going to take a program all by itself. So as the Lord allows, I'm hoping to do that in the next program. And then secondly, I'm also not going to get into the matter of the rapture, uh, because uh, it seems like uh, the amillennial teachers, they, they uh, they for the most part, just completely reject the notion that there's going to be a secret rapture of the believers. Uh, and that's important, but I... I don't see how that's an intrinsic part of the Amillennial School of Teaching. Uh, and so that's not something I'm going to deal with in this series of programs, but uh, for sure we want to get into the rapture in uh, in later programs. But, uh, the, but in the rest of this program, there's just some specific areas of Amillennial teaching that I, that, that I want to cover. That's That's the intention. So the first point that I want to cover specifically it has to do with this uh, teaching of millennialism that the church has replaced israel and of course they have to say that because they teach that there's not going to be an earthly kingdom uh, of israel on the earth for 1000 years during the millennium so then what happens to the promises god made to israel in the old testament because they can't come right out and say well those promises turned it turned out god didn't keep those promises so they have to say the church has replaced Israel, and therefore, the, the promises God made to Israel are being fulfilled spiritually uh, in the church today. And you know, even as I've been considering this, and you just it, you just have to shake your head. It just about makes you weep to feel anyone who, who claims to be a Bible believing Christian and a Bible believing Bible teacher would would deal with the scriptures in this way. It just it, it's so sad. Um. There is a sense in which the church today is uh, continuing the work God was doing in Israel. Okay, that's true. But you have to distinguish between God's purpose for Israel and God's program for Israel. You can say that the church today is continuing the purpose that God had for Israel, because that's the purpose God has always had for mankind didn't start with Israel. It goes all the way back to Adam. You know, God let us make man in our image and likeness and let him have dominion over the face of the earth. God created man to be his expression and to exercise his dominion on the earth. That's God's original purpose, and that's never changed. Uh, of course, Adam fell, uh, and eventually God gave up on the human race as a whole, and that's when he called Israel, uh, called Abraham, rather, out of the nations to follow him, and that, of course, was the beginning of the nation of Israel. And that continued God's original purpose in creating Adam. Now that purpose was with Abraham, and eventually it came to his uh, descendants who became the nation of Israel, uh, to, to, to be under God's authority and, and his rule, and so he could be manifested on the earth. And Eventually, Israel failed, so that purpose is now with the church. It hasn't changed. The purpose is the same. So the verses in the New Testament, and there's a number of verses along these lines that speak of uh, believers, those who are following Christ today, as being in the reality of what God had for Israel. That's what it's speaking of. We're, we're in that same purpose. You know, in Romans 2.28, it's really kind of talking about the Gentiles there, 28 and 29. It says uh, uh, the reality of circumcision isn't outward, it's inward. Uh, if we if we keep the law uh, and, and honor God in that way, then we have the real circumcision. Uh, in Romans chapter four, verse twelve, it talks about we're uh, the Abraham's children if we have the, if we believe in Christ. Uh, in Galatians chapter six, um, sixteen, that's that's a big one. It says uh, uh, if we walk in the principle of the new creation, we're the Israel of God. Uh, and then, of course, in in Philippians chapter 3, you have that uh, wonderful uh, uh, exhortation by the Apostle Paul about following Christ. And uh, before that, though, in uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, he says, We are the circumcision, the ones who serve by the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. And so all these verses are saying if we are the real followers of Christ, then we are in that original purpose, that God always had for mankind, and yes, which was with Israel for a time. That's what that's, the stress of these verses are. But there's nothing in any of these verses that indicate that the program God had for Israel is now being carried out by the church. Again, you have to distinguish between the purpose and the program. The purpose never changes. It's always the same, whether regardless of what dispensation you're in. The purpose is the same, but the program is different. And the particular program God had for Israel, and which he still has for Israel, is to bring his kingdom to the earth. Even though he set Israel aside for a time, he's never given that program to anyone else. That program is still with Israel, and it's going to be fulfilled. Now, of course, the dispensationalists, when they say uh, there's not going to be an earthly millennium, what they're really saying is God has entirely given up on that program for Israel that he's never going to fulfill what he originally tended, intended for the nation of Israel. But you have to ask, is there any scripture in the New Testament that indicates that? Yes, for a time being, Israel has been set aside. Is there any scripture that says God has totally given up on that program, that the, the, that the promises that God made to David... Um, or Israel, uh, the nation of Israel, elsewhere in the Old Testament, that those promises are being fulfilled in the church, and there's just nothing, nothing along those lines. And again, it's it's such a uh, a wild kind of interpretation of the scripture. It's just and so reckless, and it just it just makes you weep that people would treat the scriptures this way. And you just consider some of the uh, the promises, you know, or the statements uh, in Second Samuel seven. Uh, uh, God says this to David uh, through the, Nathan, the prophet Nathan. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come, after, come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. How can that promise to David that someone from his own body was going to sit on his throne, how could that possibly be fulfilled in the church today? Either that's fulfilled in the nation of Israel or God has broken his promise. And that's why I say, uh, again, the fundamental principle of the the amillennial hermeneutic is to refuse to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Here they refuse to believe what Nathan spoke to the king David. They just refuse to believe it. They spiritualize it and they make it a meaningless promise. It's really, really evil. Again, I'm going to keep hitting this point. They take the scripture scriptures away from the children of God. They make them feel we can't really trust what's written in the scriptures. Really evil. Really evil. Um, in, 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 in the New Testament, in uh, uh, Luke one thirty two, the angel Gabriel tells Mary uh, concerning her son that he's going, God will give to him the throne of his father David. That's in the New Testament. He is going to give her son the throne of his father David. How can that be fulfilled in the church? Uh, in Matthew uh, 24, they haven't crucified him yet, but at this point they've clearly rejected him. Uh, Matthew 24, 15, he talks about the abomination of desolation uh, being set up in the holy place. And uh, and then in verse 21, he says, at that time there will be great tribulation. Now, that's not talking about AD 70. There was nothing like that that happened in AD 70. This is talking about at the time of the great tribulation, the abomination of desolations is going to be set up in in the temple in Jerusalem. That has to be fulfilled. That's the Lord's own word. Now, in Luke, you do have a reference to the uh, destruction of the temple in AD 70, but there the sign is not the abomination of desolation. There the sign is when you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem. So that's talking about a different time. This is talking about the Great Tribulation. Do you believe that word? Uh, In Acts uh, 1... Seven and eight, the disciples asked Jesus, "Are you at this time restoring the kingdom to Israel?" What more what more clear word could you have? Jesus doesn't tell them, "No, you don't understand now that's being fulfilled in the church. He tells them, "You don't know the times. It's not for you to know the times. In other words, there is a time when the kingdom is going to be restored to Israel. These statements in scripture. Are undeniable, and and to, and to say you're uh, spiritualizing them—that it, it's that's that's just not—that's false. It's that's totally false. You're rejecting these promises. You're saying these promises are not true. You're not believing what the prophets have spoken. You're rejecting it, and it's such a serious matter. And of course, we could go on and on with these promises. But uh, I would also point something else out, which is a simple fact. in in human history, that the Jews are now back in the good land. That is just an incredible miracle. The Jews, representing the whole nation of Israel, have been restored to the good land, and now they even have possession of Jerusalem. That is something that the premillennial Bible teachers were expecting for a 100 years before it happened. And I could quote you on that, uh, just a, a very wrenching statement from Mr. Pember. Uh, almost prophetic, describing the kind of suffering the Jews would have to go through. Uh, in in Germany, he, he he saw the rising hostility of the Jews in Germany, and just uh, it breaks your heart to read that. Uh, but this was something the premillennial teachers were looking for for 100 years. Now the Jews are back in the good line. Doesn't that tell you something? That your whole view that the program that was committed to Israel is now with the church, that whole view is completely false? You know, as I was getting into this, uh, I was just reminded of of John 10, verse 38. And this is where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he says, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works. And I would turn this verse now to those who uh, teach amillennialism or who are influenced by this evil teaching. I would say this. If you don't believe the words of the Bible, if you're not willing to believe what the Scripture says, can you look at the work that the Lord has done in restoring Israel to the good land? Maybe that will help you finally to recognize that your system is completely false. It's not according to what God is doing today. This is not a game. Sometimes, you you know, the things I hate most about these, uh, you know, the theologians and, uh, and, and their work is they treat the Bible like it's a game to falsely teach and to lead the Bible, lead believers astray with a false Bible teaching is very, very, very serious. And anyone who teaches the Bible, myself included, has to be so fearful before the Lord, we would be involved in that. It's not a game. It's a very, very serious manage, man, manner, matter, and it's causing, uh, Christians to be overthrown in their faith and, and, very soberly, you have to consider that before the Lord. Is my teaching right according to the Bible? I'm not interested in arguments. I'm uh, very concerned about the truth and that God's children would have the truth. This matters so much that we come to the Word in a proper way. And, and, and again, in dealing with non that's a negative thing that you have to deal with. But I'm hoping in doing so, uh, some believers may have a much more sober view of how we really should be coming to the Word. Praise the Lord for that. Another aspect of our millennial teaching is that they uh, they really strongly stress that there's not going to be stages for the Lord's coming. He's going to come all at once and it's all going to be over all at once. Deal with Satan, we go right into the eternal stage. They don't like to uh, agree that there's a millennium in part because they don't want to see the progressive aspect of the Lord's return. And that's a characteristic It seems of Reformed theology because they so strongly stress, uh, overstress the matter of God's sovereignty. They don't like to see anything that has to do um, with man's responsibility. And the progressive aspect of salvation and the progressive aspect of the Lord's return has to do with man's responsibility. So they always want to diminish the progressive aspect. And one way they do that with the Lord's return is by saying everything's going to happen all at once, there's not going to be, He's not going to pause on his way to the earth there's not going to be uh, a a secret aspect of his coming he's just going to come and that's going to be it it's all going to be over well in response to that you just have to point out these verses in the new testament that strongly say the lord is coming as a thief in first thessalonians 5 chapter 2 uh, the lord is talking to these young believers and he says you yourselves know perfectly well that the day of the lord is comes as a thief in the night. Well, a thief, when a thief comes, he's not coming openly. He's not announcing that he's coming. Hello, everyone, I'm coming to steal everything. That's not the way a thief works. A thief comes secretly. And here, Paul even says, the thief comes at night. That's the way the day of the Lord is going to be. It's going to start in a secret way. And the people aren't going to know it uh, at first when the Lord starts to come Again, a big aspect of New Testament teaching. It's not just there, Revelation chapter 3, verse 3. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. He's talking to believers here. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Here he's talking to the believers, and he says, the Lord himself is saying, I'm going to come as a thief. Uh, Again, He's coming to steal away, and as I said, I'm not going to get too much into the rapture. But there's a uh, uh, this is speaking here of the rapture. A thief comes to steal the things that are precious, and that's what the Lord's going to do when He comes as a thief, secretly to take away some of the believers to be with Himself. Revelation chapter 16, uh, verse 15. The Lord says, "Behold, I am coming as a thief." Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he should walk naked and they see his shame. Here he says directly, I am coming as a thief. So again, that's a secret coming. He's talking about a secret hidden coming here that people aren't going to know about. And he's coming to take the things that are precious before he comes openly. So again, this strongly contradicts the amillennial view that everything's going to happen all at once openly. There's not going to be a secret aspect of the Lord's coming. Again, another, another important point to keep in mind. And I think that will do it for this edition of the Christian Faith Radio Hour. I had some thoughts about some other points I wanted to get into, but I think that's enough uh, for now. As I say, as, as the Lord allows in the next program, my intention is to get into Revelation 20 and how uh, amillennialists uh, deal with that. In the meantime, may the Lord keep you in his grace for his sake and his glory. Amen. You've been listening to the Christian Faith Radio Hour. You can visit us online at our website, thechristianfaith.org. And if you have comments or questions, send us an email at questions at thechristianfaith.org. And to listen to previous editions of this program, look for the Christian Faith Radio Hour podcast, which you can access via our website under the Media tab or directly on iTunes or Spotify.